You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am so excited for today's discussion. In the world of pediatric audiology, early intervention is everything. There are so many aspects of a child's life that are impacted when hearing loss goes undiagnosed for an extended period of time. And although newborn hearing screenings are much more common than they were before the 90s, not all states have statutes requiring screenings or follow-up care. Countless children with hearing loss are missed every year, and today's guest is working to change that. Dr. Melanie Morris is a pediatric audiologist who graduated from the University of Memphis with her AUD in 2015. She's currently working as a pediatric audiologist with Georgia's new mobile audiology program. Melanie's background has been in clinical audiology, with the majority of her work experience being at a children's hospital. In addition to specializing in electrophysiological testing, hearing aid management, and clinical supervision, she has a strong interest in providing and promoting services to underserved populations, as well as educating others about the need for early intervention. She is a great leader. She's a great teacher. She's all around a really cool person. It's Dr. Melanie Morris. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Dakota. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, we are so excited to have you. I, I recall, I'm just going to like put this little ad in here, that in my time in Atlanta, not only were you like, you know, a really fabulous clinical supervisor and teacher, but you're also probably one of the most like plugged into the heartbeat of Atlanta people that I met in my time there. It was like, oh, I need a restaurant to go to this weekend. Who am I going to ask? Oh, I'm going to ask Melanie. Oh, I need like an event. Like I need some, what, what's going on at this thing? I should probably ask Melanie that. <laughs> I do. I do recall writing down long post-it notes of all the fun things to do in Atlanta, you know, back when we could do fun things in Atlanta. So <laughs> it's nice to remember those times. <laughs> yes. I treasured those post-it notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot less to do now, but we'll get back there. We'll get back there eventually. (laughs) All right. So I am so excited to be talking about this mobile audiology program in Georgia. So not only are you, I mean, you're kind of all over the state now. You're not just in Atlanta. Can you tell me a little bit about the mobile audiology program you guys have started? Like, like where did this idea come from? And like, what are you guys going to do? What's up with that? Yes. Let me try and dissect this so that it's a little bit more digestible. So To start with, um, the Georgia Mobile Audiology Program is a nonprofit program that is actually, the funding is housed through the Georgia Department of Education. And so we are primarily seeing children, it's all children, so birth up to the age of 22. Um, And we're doing diagnostic testing. So anything from the very beginning of newborn hearing screenings, um, diagnostic ABR testing, Um, mass hearing screenings for school age population, um, and then diagnostic testing as as children get older up to the age of 22. And in addition to the clinical testing, we're doing a ton of professional development. So we, instead of just going around the state and providing these services, we are trying to go around the state, figure out exactly what services they have, 
And in many of these cases, there are services there and they just didn't know about them. So we're connecting providers to each other. We're connecting um, patients in need to providers who are in their area. We have even helped troubleshoot. There was one practice that couldn't get the well care contract. And so they couldn't see any patients that had well care. So we are trying to work with the state to figure out, can we get them that well care contract? So then, then they can start providing those services and we don't necessarily need to. So it's, it's a lot more than just like a clinic on wheels. Um, but yeah, that's basically the overview of it. I'll tell you a little bit about how it was created. Um, there was a law that was passed back in 2018. Um, it's a mouthful. It's the OCGA 30-1-5. There's a lot of really cool information in this. Um, so what they were doing is they were basically, the whole goal is better outcomes, better literacy outcomes for deaf and hard of hearing kids. And so they started like looking at all the data and they basically found that we are under identifying a lot of children in the state. And so we're kind of, our program is basically their brainchild. They were the, they were the brainchild of it. So they came up with this program and then got funding through um, the general assembly. So the state legislature, and then the department of education basically applied to kind of house the funding. So then we're under the Department of Education, which, <laughs> yeah, at first I thought, okay, I'm seeing infants. How is this Department of Education? But the whole thing is about literacy. So, and we'll get into this about why we need to diagnose early and intervene early, but the ultimate goal is literacy. So um, that obviously is going to impact education and long-term academic results. Got it. That's really interesting. So a little bit of a sneak peek for listeners. Our next episode is going to be um, with Dr. Crystal Werfel. She's a faculty member at the University of South Carolina, and she is specifically studying the impact of hearing loss on literacy. So there, she has this big study called the Ella study, um, and that's that's the number one thing they're looking at. So that's what we're going to be talking about in the next episode. So this will be a great building block for that. that that's awesome. Very cool. I might I'll have to listen in, and I might need her contact information. So yeah, that's great. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so you mentioned under-identified or under-diagnosed. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. So we basically, within, there's this large report within the OCGA 30-1-5. Um, they have to submit a report every year. And so last year was the first full report, but they're looking at the numbers of kids who like it's, it's called this dashboard. So it's imagine you're looking at this like car dashboard and you have this little pinwheel of, okay, what percentage of children are receiving the newborn hearing screening by one month of age? And that is looking great. We have 96% of the kids who are receiving the newborn hearing screening and rescreening by one month. That's awesome. And then we go to diagnosis by three months of age and it's 32% of wow. kids who are getting that diagnosis by 32 months of age. And it doesn't just stop there. As you know, like we diagnose for a reason. We then want to intervene and provide resources. So the next kind of benchmark is, are they enrolling in early intervention by six months of age? And out of that 32% who actually got the diagnosis by three months, only 35% of those kids are enrolling in early intervention wow. by six months of age. Yes. The, the goal of this law is to then be able to have this better way of tracking those babies into school age. Right now, the only way to like look at literacy for third grade um, reading for a child who has um, hearing loss, the only way to like pull out the kids that have hearing loss is if 
hearing loss is their special education identifier. So if that's what enrolled them in special ed. So if we think of all the kids who have hearing loss who are in mainstream classrooms, like they don't have, they're not in special ed. So they, they don't have, we, we don't know about them. And this law is now providing a way of kind of tracking these kids. Sure. So in the next like five years, hopefully when these kids are then in the third grade, because we've already been tracking them through, you know, a couple of years of age. So once they're in the third grade, we can then look at, okay, which kids are not, not needing special ed services and are in mainstream and looking at like what went right with them. And then what kids, you know, are in special ed and have that primary identifier as um, deaf and hard of hearing and kind of what, 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 what separates those two paths. So with that is basically some of the, the target populations that we will be working with are um, families in rural areas, because we have a lot of data to show that they're really, there's a lack of services in some of those areas. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, families that speak a language other than English, and then families that have a low income, or that live in low income geographic areas are often late identified. And we, we call this a zip code lottery. So kind of depending on where you live and what your income level, it determines your access to services, which is just really um, unfair and unfortunate and totally, I mean, I think that we can avoid that. So that is our ultimate goal. Gotcha. That's really awesome. I, I love this idea of the dashboard where you've got like, like a speedometer and you want to be, you know, like in the green, but right now you're not so yes, much in the exactly. green. Yeah. So we're only in the green for the screenings and then we're in, we're in the red for everything else. And I'm sure, I'm sure that's the case in a lot of States too. I don't really know what the data says to that, but I know, especially in states, you know, where it's more rural things, are, what, the states that have, you know, large populations that fit the demographics you just listed, probably you're having similar problems too. Right. And we've actually had quite a few states reach out to us to figure out, you know, how can we help them set up their mobile unit. So it's definitely not unique to Georgia. I think every state is a little different in how they collect the data. Sure. And for Georgia, we until this law was passed, we just don't really have a good way to truly assess literacy scores for um, kids that, that have hearing loss. So I'm excited. I feel like this is a really like, this is a huge time to be involved in a project like this because absolutely we're going to have a lot of good data and I do not have my PhD, but I know that like we need, we need a lot of like facts. We need, we need data in order to then make a big change and kind of understand what helped and what didn't help. Sure, sure. Okay, so we're not too worried about the newborn hearing screenings. You said like 96, 98%, right? Mm -hmm. I'm curious. I, I know what I know about Georgia is you have like the really big metropolitan area of Atlanta, of course, and it stretches really far. But Georgia is a really big state, and that's kind of like the big metropolitan area. And things like, you know, electrophysio, like ABRs, those aren't done at smaller, you know, primarily hearing aid practices. So what kind of is, do you have an idea of like, what is the accessibility to diagnostic ABRs around the state? Did you guys get a feel of that? There's this really great map that um, was provided by the Georgia Department of um, Public Health, and it it's like a gradient. So it has the whole map of Georgia, and then it has every county, and it's all colored in. So if it's really dark blue, that's where there are about five or more centers that provide diagnostic testing. And then it gets lighter and lighter blue and then completely white when there are no centers, if that makes sense. So I'm looking at it right now. And as you mentioned, um, Georgia is a relatively large state and we see this really dark blue right in Atlanta. 
and then pretty much the rest of the state is completely white. So there are no, there are not very many providers outside of Atlanta. There are some, and and the, the thing about it is, <laughs> these are, I mean, this is these are not all facts, but this is kind of what my take is on when I've gone around the state and kind of talked with different providers, but there are a lot of reasons why people don't want to do diagnostic testing, diagnostic ABR testing. One, the equipment is incredibly expensive. Um, and if you're a private practice, then that's probably not always going to be feasible. Two, it takes a really long time. And if y'all have ever done it, you know it takes a long time and you know that it can be really stressful. It's a really stressful test for parents trying to get their brand new perfect baby to fall asleep while you're scrubbing their face and putting liquids on. So I, I get why nobody really wants to do this. And then many times, as you probably remember, Dakota, like, we would try a test and then the baby wouldn't sleep and then you can't do it. And so, you know, reimbursement on that is just, it doesn't necessarily shake out. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably like, that's kind of my main area of focus is this diagnostic ABR and this early diagnosis um, piece of our program. And when I, I will say when we started the program, you know, we had our program manager, actually, let me tell you all who's on our team. Um, so we have four people. Um, we have a program manager, and then we have Stormy Cohn. She's our um, family engagement specialist, and she actually lives in South Georgia. So she helps families kind of navigate the whole system and pretty much just can be an, a person to reach out to as far as just kind of understanding resources are available and, and what to expect. Um, and then we have Monica Patterson, who is a pediatric audiologist, and she's actually, she has the educational audiology background. And then myself. So I'm more the clinical. So it's kind of this perfect blend for pediatrics of having educational and clinical. I feel like those are the two big pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. So right when we started, it was our program manager who's not an audiologist. And she thankfully recognized we need to go out and figure out like what is the need before we can develop our program. So we spent about six months just driving around the state and meeting with clinics that we would just Google and find out that they existed, um, figure out what services they provided. We would meet with any coordinators and our early intervention. So our babies can't wait coordinators and all of that. And the main thing that everybody said was families have to drive three and a half, four hours for this diagnostic ABR, or they have to go to another state. And then they have to figure out like, so down in South Georgia, they'll go to Florida um, or East Georgia, they'll go to South Carolina, that sort of stuff. So dealing with a lot of like insurance barriers and yeah. So nightmares. Yes, yeah, nightmares. this is our, that's pretty much like the main area that it's almost like, it's not an easy fix, but it's just a very definable challenge or a definable problem that we are um, working to address. So. Got it. So beyond, so then, so we're figuring out, so we, now we know that there are very few diagnostic ABR options, you know, outside of Atlanta for the most part, other than, you know, going across state lines. And then you mentioned an even smaller percentage are getting early intervention. And I have to imagine that's true because coming from, you know, my early clinical experience being in a pretty small town, you know, maybe the size of a medium town in Georgia, or I mean, it was a medium town in Virginia, you kind of had one place that you would send a kid with hearing loss for hearing aids. Um, and even that person didn't see that many kids with hearing loss. So like, I have to imagine you have a similar situation around Georgia as well. So what, what's the, what's the plan for that? 
So for hearing aids or for diagnostic ABR? For hearing aids. Like for intervention in general, whether, you know, it ends up being a CI or a hearing aid or, or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So let's actually define early intervention. So this can be hearing aids, it can be cochlear implants, or it can be speech therapy or signing therapy, you know, various resources or a combination of both. And so that's kind of how that's defined in that dashboard. So a family who is culturally deaf, they may not choose hearing aids, but they will still get enrolled in an early intervention program. Anyway, so... As far as that goes, we do have some long-term plans with this. So our family engagement specialist, um, she was actually a deaf and hard of hearing teacher for about 17 years. She's completely fluent in ASL, and she's currently actually, she's getting her certificate in um, LSL, listening and spoken language. There's a really great website called hearingfirst.org. And they provide a lot of great LSL free resources. So there's like an 18-month program that you can do for free and, and get this certification. It's not, you will not be like LSL certified, but it is an extra kind of just information. If you're an SLP and you live somewhere in South Georgia and you have a child who in your class or that you're working with um, that has hearing loss and you don't really know what to do, hearingfirst.org is a great place to start. So... She is going to be doing a lot of direct work with the families in partnership with like an SLP that might be in the area who doesn't really know what to do with a child who has hearing loss. So she's kind of coaching them in some ways and providing them with some of those skills. As far as hearing aids, and I can talk a little bit more about the the therapies and such, we obviously are putting kids in contact with whatever therapies they have in their area. And then a lot of our two auditory verbal centers in the area, auditory verbal center, and then the Atlanta speech school, they both do teletherapy. And so they are able to do that, which is really nice. Um, As far as hearing aids go, we, this was kind of a challenging decision. I mean, in some ways for me, I feel very strongly about continuity of care and I just felt strongly that we do not need to be the first choice for providing hearing aids. So our main thing is setting up a really good groundwork for these different communities, because if we disappear, if we lose our funding, like we want them to be better off than after we left than before we got, you know what I mean? So we don't want to just take away every resource that we just gave them. So what we're doing is the first thing is, is I created this map of every every single clinic and ENT clinic that had audiologists, hospitals, everything, and figured out, I called them all and just said, what service do you you provide? Do you provide hearing aids, sedated ABRs, non-sedated ABRs? What insurances do you take? All of this. So our first step when we get a family that contacts us and says, you know, I, I, my child has hearing loss and we need to find an audiologist is we help them find an audiologist. And we feel pretty strongly that the best thing for that family, if they don't have a lot of resources to drive to Atlanta to see a specialist who's, you know, specializes in pediatrics is going to be to find somebody that provides services in their area. And so we can offer professional development for these audiologists in various other forms. Um, But that is primarily what we're doing is we're connecting them with um, providers that are close to them. And then we have a good relationship with a foundation that can provide like transportation costs and and things like that. 
for instance, we have a, a little, well, I won't go into too much detail without giving too much away, but we have a family that um, lives in a rural area and she ended up, she saw her local provider for hearing aids and then was contacting our family engagement specialist concerned that her hearing was declining. And so we kind of intervened to help mom figure out what to do next. And we got them to go up to Children's Healthcare of Atlanta for more testing to figure out if um, she was a cochlear implant candidate. And so for cochlear implant services, pretty much everybody has to go to Atlanta, but we've been working with them and actually working with Kelly Murphy, who was on this last week to, to figure out kind of how can we trim down those appointments. So we recognize that is kind of like the center of excellence in Georgia, and we're not going to be able to replicate cochlear implant services all over the state. And so right now we're just helping these families like okay, if they go to Atlanta, can we get all their appointments on that day? Can we help them with hotel costs and transportation and that sort of thing? Yeah, that's amazing. And I I saw this map. I don't know if I asked you about it or if I just, when I was like looking into your program, if I'd come across it, but I was like, this is the most needed thing in every state. Like, I think, I don't know if every Eddie program needs this, you know, the, the methods that you went about making this map, or I, I don't know who should, be, maybe the Academy of Audiology, I don't know, but I know that when I first got to South Carolina, it was my first big issue. Was I was like, where do I send someone in this situation? And who does what around here? And it was like, no one had one clear picture and definitely not for the entire state. And so it really is such a great tool. And I think you're right. Like eventually as you know, more telehealth options become, I mean, more feasible. I mean, I, I think it's realistic at some point that Things like cochlear implant mappings and hearing aid programmings will be, you know, pretty easy to do via teletherapy or telehealth. Like if you've already got this kind of network established where you know where practices are and you kind of have the groundwork for that kind of thing, it'll just be so much of an, you know, an easier transition because you you have an awareness of who does what and where someone can go. And for many families, that's just the first step is connecting them with a clinician. Yeah. And you bring up a good point. Sometimes I feel like the most complicated problems have sometimes have simple solutions. And for me, the biggest thing was just connecting people. So I worked in Atlanta for five years and I, I just, I was in this little bubble and I didn't really realize that, but I didn't know where to refer a baby who spent time in the NICU and lived, you know, outside of Atlanta. I had no idea what to tell that family. And I just, I look back on that. I'm like, man, I kind of, I did a lot of these families a disservice because I just, I didn't know what to, where to send them. And so a lot of, I know we used to always just say, well, you can find somebody in your area or you can come back. And so then these families would have to come back, you know? So that is one of the biggest things that we've been working on is just connecting, connecting providers with providers, and then also connecting providers with resources that exist throughout the state. There are tons of resources that are available and I just never really knew about them. And they're just going on unused and un, it's an untapped resource. So I'm all about connecting people. In fact, I created a online, it's a, it's a pediatric audiology network for um, Georgia pediatric audiologists or just audiologists that see kids in general. It's on a platform called Mighty Networks. So it's not on Facebook or anything, but the whole point of it is just, okay, we have this space that we can, you know, share case studies or we can ask like, hey, I think I saw somebody who's from Columbus, like what insurance do you take? You know, just a way to connect people real quick. Let me mention to so the map. Yeah. 
I love my map. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I don't know how feasible it's going to be to maintain because <laughs> I'm already, it's been a year since I started. So now I'm like, oh, wait, I got to call everybody back and see if everything's still the same. <laughs> I know that Eddie Powell's, it's um, Eddie as an early hearing detection and intervention, pediatric audiology links to services, Eddie Powell's. They, they have a system where you can go in as an audiologist and type in all your clinic's information, and then you can show, you will show up as like a search. So if a parent searches, I like, I need an audiologist in South Carolina, your, your practice will show up. It is incredibly outdated, like kind of laughable, but they are, (laughs) they are working on it right now. So it's like something that they are hoping to kind of unveil in the near future. So yes, we, we actually just updated our entry not that long ago. Yes. Okay, with, cool. You know, yeah. all the new services we provide and everything. So that is going to be a really great resource. I'm glad that there's like a, you know, an organization who like, that's what they do. Yes. So it doesn't fall on, you know, you who's doing all the other things that your program has to accomplish. And then once a year, make a thousand phone calls. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So anyway, I think that's a very, a very needed and very cool resource set. Anyway. <laughs> cool. Okay. So kind of getting back into these like under-identified children. Mm-hmm. So let's say we get to the point where they're either like they're missed by their screening or they're lost to follow up for their diagnostic or they're lost to follow up for their intervention. Has your team in like, you know, researching this project and the needs, have y'all kind of figured out some of the impacts that, you know, A, might be happening for the child, but B, might be happening like, you know, to like the general public health, you know, with all of these, you know, missed children. Like, do y'all have a a sense of what the impact is for that? Yes. And actually, um, so the big report that I keep, uh, keep referencing the OCGA one, that's kind of some of the data that they gathered to kind of justify why they needed our program. Um, I'll tell you some of my kind of subjective things that I've seen just as we go. And then I'll tell you more of the concrete data. So one, if we are not identifying, if we are not doing a diagnostic ABR by three months, we're going to increase the rates of sedation so much. So that's something that just like in clinic, you know, you see a child who they failed in one year. Now they're eight months old and or six months old and, you know, you can't get the behavioral testing. And so then you have to do sedation. So it's just, that's just such an added stressor and added expense, just all of it. And it's something that could just have been avoided. And I'm realizing, I think at times back when I worked in the hospital, I would be a little bit like, wait, like parent, why did you not come back? Like, what are you doing? And now I'm like, of course they didn't come back. They they don't have transportation or they don't have, they didn't have insurance and nobody can see them without insurance or they have to drive three hours and their baby's asleep in the car. You know, there's just so many, so many barriers. You know, we all know the, the research on, you know, a delayed diagnosis, delayed intervention equals lower language scores, which then impacts literacy scores. So kind of bigger long-term is all about that literacy. So research shows that children who don't read proficiently by the end of the third grade are more likely to drop out of high school. They're more likely to have kind of lower quality of health. So poor health or have discipline problems. And so that's, that's kind of our big, our big thing is just, we all want the best quality of life that we can have. And this is bigger than just meeting this one, three, six, this is going to be impacting the rest of their lives. And then from kind of an economic standpoint, there is an economic cost associated with not meeting these, these milestones or these goals. 
Um, so the estimated lifetime educational cost of a child with hearing loss is about $115,000. Oh my gosh, per child? Yeah, over the course of their educational time. So yeah, it's a it's a big it's a big cost, and sometimes money is what makes people make <laughs> legislative decisions. So yes, you know, we also I'll give you these sources, but un, unidentified and unmanaged hearing loss can result in a household a loss of household income by up to thirty thousand dollars per year, which then also impacts the negative like negatively impacts the economy, taxes, all of that. So. I think from a heartstrings thing, I'm just imagining, you know, this three-year-old who comes in and they're not talking and they're, they're just so like, they're just annoyed. They're like, they're frustrated. They can't communicate. And like, that's what really gets me. But then, I mean, luckily we do have some data that just shows like, okay, people it's, it's bigger than just that. Yeah. So, I mean, that impacts everything from you go as small as the child themselves into the family, into the community, into the state. I mean, that is, that is, I mean, I had, you think about it and it makes total sense, but you never really consider the impact. You know, it's always, you know, most important to consider the impact of that child. But I mean, really, it does have such an impact. That's really interesting that you guys have the data for that too. And I'm sure, yeah, unfortunately, that is probably the biggest motivator when it comes to, you know, <laughs> getting someone from a legislative standpoint involved. Yeah. So it's a little, it's a lot, it's heavy, but um, yeah, no, it's, it's there. Gotcha. Um, okay. So another question for you, like sort of related to identifying, but more later on. So I don't, for some reason, I can't remember the prevalence, but the prevalence of hearing loss in children increases when you look at school age compared to newborns, whether it's late onset or progressive or like, you know, otitis media or like, you know, all of these things increase the prevalence. Are you guys, I know that Atlanta has some, you know, hearing screening programs in schools, but I wonder how common is that in the more rural areas? Is there anything you guys are doing in that sphere? So actually, yes. So we are looking into seeing if Georgia will mandate school age hearing screenings. So right now, the city of Atlanta, the majority of their counties, they do them. So they have just chosen to do them. Some of them have probably chosen to do them because they realize, you know, if we identify, then we are going to intervene and get better literacy scores, which are then going to help our school and our funding and all of that. And maybe out of the goodness of their own heart. But <laughs> a lot of these rural communities, no, they do not mandate them because they don't even have the personnel to do it or they don't have anywhere to refer them to. So that is something that we are, we are working on. So my colleague, Monica, has actually developed kind of a like, so you want to start a mass hearing screening? toolkit. So it's like what to do, like what's the procedure, what equipment do you need and all of that. And we've done quite a few trainings throughout the state for schools and districts that are interested in it. Now things are a little bit different during the times of COVID. So I'm not really sure how this is going to be impacted, but it's once again, it's that zip code lottery. It's okay. You live in a metro area, you'll get that screening, but if you don't, then you, you won't. Um, one thing we're trying to do before we really try and get that mandated is we need to make sure we have the services to do the diagnostic testing afterwards, because there's no point in doing a screening if you're not going to follow up on it. So that is a big, that is a big, I'm glad you brought that up because that's definitely an area that, um, that we are hoping to work on. And then another fact about that is I'm sure every state is slightly different, but in Georgia, 
the metro counties have educational audiologists. So they have audiologists on staff, but many of the rural counties, like almost none of them have an educational audiologist. And so oftentimes, you know, the, the audiologist that works in the private clinic in their area, they end up having to kind of serve as that. And so this, this private audiologist is now somehow seeing birth to grave and somehow supposed to know about educational audiology. So it's a lot of... They've got to know IEPs and all of the lingo and yeah. Exactly. So we've we've also provided support um, or have hoped to, or have, we have provided support for a couple audiologists that really just need to know what what is their role as the educational audiologist if they're going to contract with the schools. And some schools are actually looking to contract with us so that we can provide that diagnostic testing which this actually brings up pretty much the best thing about our program. So we're free. I don't know if I mentioned that. You said nonprofit, but you never said free. That's amazing. <laughs> we are free. So we do not charge families anything. And the reason for this is because if we're going to bill insurance, there are so many hurdles to getting prior authorization, to getting it approved and getting those contracts, all of that. So those are just these arbitrary hurdles to getting a diagnosis and it's just going to delay it. So we are free. Um, when it comes to schools, though, we are not free because technically like schools, they get funding, they get federal funding to provide these services. So we are we have like a contract rate for, for schools. But if a family is just like, you know, they call us and they say they need a test, then we're free completely. Yeah, that's amazing. It totally makes sense with schools too, but that's really cool. That's going to be like just that for so many families, I'm sure just the initial thought of a doctor's visit without insurance is like, it's not even worth it. Regardless of if it was a cheap doctor's visit, it's like I know. that scary thought. It's like the fact that you can put free off the top of the flyer, you know, is going to draw in so many more people. And just not needing a referral. So I just, there's so many hoops to get things sure. approved. And um, that's the best part. <laughs> okay. So actually that leads me to a question I've wanted to ask. And I'm hoping that you have like pictures or something that we'll be able to put on the site. But I'm curious, like the like the building of the bus or the, what do you, do you call it a van? Like, what does it look like on the inside? Like, how is it structured? Do you have like an office in there? Like, I'm really, is this like a tiny home on wheels? What are we looking at here? <laughs> yeah. You know, I would probably call it a tiny home on wheels. <laughs> so it actually just arrived in March, you know, right when the pandemic started. Um, Oh no. But it's built by this company called Audulaire and they um, make a lot of mobile health clinics. So I will send you the link and then also some pictures. So <laughs> it's pulled by a F550. So it's like a big old truck and then it has like the huge audiology like bed or like you know box or whatever. And so Sure. It has solar panels on top so we don't have to hook up to um different power sources and then therefore hopefully have less um electrical noise on the outs it's wow. very swanky so we have this <laughs> button on the outside and it just like automatically opens this awning and then we've got a tv on the outside so parents could be sitting out there like watching like educational information oh my gosh i was like picturing the parents like watching sports or something not like yeah, okay, well. <laughs> you're, you're thinking of like using this as a great tool and i'm like yeah they can just chill <laughs> I will say, right when we saw it, I was like, we should take this tailgating. <laughs> so we also have a wheelchair like ramp. It's not a it's not a ramp. It's like an elevator. It's a very intense elevator. So 
you walk up the stairs or you go up the wheelchair ramp and you, you basically have this little tiny room. It's like a, and it has a little accordion divider. So we can have some privacy there, but it's probably only enough space for like two adults. And that's, we're going to have like cabinets so we can put our equipment in there and we're going to have to figure out, are we just going to like Velcro, like a ton of like, how do we keep them from moving? So anyway, we've got that little room and then we've got the audiologist chair and then like a little room in there. Um, And then we've got the booth. So it's a, it's a sizable booth. You could probably fit three adults in there, which hopefully we'll never have to put three adults in there. Um, Yeah. And then we've got, it's fully suited out with VRA speakers, all of that. We've got all the hearing aid verification equipment, just in case we do end up dispensing a hearing aid, which I mentioned earlier that we we're aiming to not, but we will never turn a patient away. So we will figure out how to get them a hearing aid if we need to. Sure. No, it's pretty cool. Okay. So, so maybe, I hope this isn't like an inappropriate question. Was a lot of your equipment new? Oh, it was all new. Did you feel like, like an audiologist kid on Christmas morning with all of your new stuff? Cause I can imagine that is a nice day opening that stuff up. Oh my gosh. It was a very, the day that we got to load and like meet the company to load all the equipment in there was like the best day ever. <laughs> it was a long process. So I work for the state anyone ever has worked for the state or the government, they know that everything takes a really long time. There's a long process for figuring out bidding and doing all this stuff. So I like ordered this equipment probably six months before we got it. So it was just this like beautiful moment. So yes, it was very exciting. (laughs) That's got to be really good. Yeah. And then I will mention, so that our plan for the the van, which, oh man, only gets six miles per gallon. (laughs) Whoa. Well, I mean, I mean, I guess you mean like the F five fifty gets. I mean, that's got. Okay, hold on. Who drives this? I'm I'm picturing like almost like a monster truck here. Who's driving this thing? Oh, it's a monster truck, and we do we drive it. Oh my gosh! So you're behind the wheel of this thing. <laughs> I'm behind the wheel of this thing, and we don't have to have our commercial driver's license. It's like just a little bit smaller where we don't need it. <laughs> um, but we are we are getting CDL training without the certification, just so that we feel more comfortable. It is massive. Yeah, it's really that's really cool and it's bright yellow so we call it sunny that's amazing <laughs> it's very big um i'm a little nervous about that but <laughs> so anyway it's we are going to when we take it out our goal is to maximize its use so we're going to do like lots of hearing screenings on one day or go to a school and do a lot of diagnostics but whenever we do the i, w- I meant to say this the diagnostic abr we don't really need the van We've been, um, we actually, prior to COVID, we were already doing diagnostic ABRs. We would just be able to drive to a health department and that eddy coordinator would help us get the family there. And then we would do multiple tests in the day and then either stay in a hotel and do some more the next day or drive home. So, wow, that's really cool. And so do you think, first of all, thinking of electrical noise with a solar panel, I guarantee that was a you decision. That sounds like, (laughs) I distinctly remember at one of the hospitals that electrical noise or sometimes it wasn't even electric. It was like ghost noise. It was like no one knew where it was coming from, but I feel like it affected you a lot. And that's probably one of the reasons. In the operating room, that's a whole other beast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't work for Vivisonic, but I, now that I have a Vivisonic, I have had, it has been much easier. Yeah. That's great. That's yeah. great. So kind of getting back to when you were talking about like working as a state program. And if anybody's listening to this, who might be like, I'm kind of really passionate about reaching these underserved areas. Like, 
from what I understand, it was like, this was like an idea as a result of that law. And then, you know, you got involved and kind of helped create the, what would go on to be the van. So where, where do you think someone could begin if they don't have the data that's come out from their state that says, Hey, we need this. It's like, they're coming to their state and saying, Hey, I think we need this and I want to help do it. Like, can you explain a little bit of like, I know you kind of talked about you're under the department of ed, but you work with DHH. So like, can you flesh that out a little bit? Yeah. So that's, that's a challenging question. Cause I think Georgia's a little bit unique in that we just happen to have this law change. And so then it was just this like group of powerhouse women that just decided that this is what needed to happen. But honestly, I would just recommend reaching out to any state programs because working for this state for me has been really great because it has just more of a far reaching like audience. So, you know, it's not just your little bubble or where you live. You're able to kind of understand what are these state programs that exist around this around the state outside of the city or outside of this town that I live in. So like Eddie would be a great place to start the early hearing detection and intervention program. And then some states have like hands and voices. So our Georgia hands and voices um, is a parent led organization. We also have let Georgia hear, which is they actually were also very um, impactful with, with getting this funding or they applied with it with department of ed for this um, to house the funding. So let Georgia here is a parent led initiative that basically makes sure that every family in Georgia can get access to hearing aids. So there was a law that was passed, I believe it was 2017, 2018. It was connected to that OCGA, but they basically said that all insurances that are housed within Georgia um, have to pay for hearing aids. There are a lot of stipulations with that, but it was the move, right, the move in the right direction. So that parent-led organization Obviously, if you don't live in Georgia, you're not going to go to let Georgia here, but they have like let Florida here. Let they're trying to to kind of Yeah. They're they're working on that same bill is currently, you know, in committee in South Carolina, the let South Carolina here bill. And so Kelly Jenkins, who's the one that started it here in um Georgia, she is like she's the one who's kind of running this around around the country. That's a good place to start. Um and then just, I mean, the two main organizations are Department of Public Health and Department of Education. So those are like, and every state is organized a little bit differently. Like sometimes, like we are, sometimes things are housed more in the public health sector rather than the education sector and vice versa. Um, but that would be where I would start just to try and figure out kind of maybe somebody's already thinking about this or, you know, maybe they have no idea why they're their scores are so low or things like that. That's a know? great, do you have any like, like, you know, some of the benefits and some of the not so benefits of working through a system like this? Cause it's, I mean, that's not like a small business that started this. It's like department of education, department of health. There's so many like big state departments. Are there any like big, like cool um, victories and like good ex positive experiences you had and anything that you've had to kind of fight through? Times of victories. Like, I just feel very lucky that I've gotten the flexibility to just go and meet people, meet audiologists throughout the state. Like, I don't know who gets to do that. So it's just like, that's been really nice. I would say our victories have been, so one I did, I, I trained an audiologist in a county that didn't have access to the ABRs and trained her on diagnostic ABRs. 
and did this for probably like six or eight weeks once a week. And now she's able to provide these to kids who that don't have insurance. So like that has been a huge thing because I've been on lockdown since COVID, but she hasn't been. So she has been seeing these babies like all day, every day, and is actually able to provide that service. So that's been a huge win. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so I think like big picture, just working for the state, I'm, it's been really nice to meet everybody and try and figure out, you know, what what issues exist in each community. Because every community is different. Even though we're all in the state of Georgia, like they have different challenges and stuff. So it is, it has been really nice to do that. And then also the word has kind of gotten out about our program. And so we have families that just kind of reach out to us and they say like, I don't even know where to start. What can we do? And then we can provide them with those services. Um, the other big one, we worked with a foundation called the Jason Cunningham Foundation and they funded it fully, but then we helped kind of man, man it for lack of better word. But um, during the Corona pandemic, right at the beginning, they basically realized like, what are these families going to do for hearing aid batteries? Like they typically get these from their clinical audiologist, but they're shut down or their nurse at the school gives them to them or whatever. And so we were able to provide batteries to over 300 families that were living all over the state. Wow. Um, yeah. So that was really neat. And we've got a cool map of like showing where all we mailed them out to. We just, the foundation paid for it. And then I would get the information from the family and then just order them directly on Amazon and ship them out. So that was, that was really neat. That is really cool. That's so awesome. You have that direct impact like that. Um, and it's, that's something that I feel like so few people would think about when things are shutting down is like, you know, batteries, they don't last for that long. And so they're going to need something pretty soon. Right. Exactly. Um, you asked about the downside of <laughs> things. That... Or just like, you know, more of the challenges. I, there's such a like bad rap for, you know, state government. And th- I mean, I'm also a state employee, like, it's there's there's known red tape that's that's an obvious one but have their end okay that's exactly they, things yeah. take a while like we ordered our equipment six months before we got our equipment and right now we're looking to like everything looks different than how we plan this program because now we're in the middle of a global pandemic so we are completely like shifting what our program might look like in terms of like more telepractice. And so we need different equipment and we need all these things. And I'm just worried it's going to take a little bit too long. So I think just getting things approved takes forever, but um, once they do, there's a lasting impact. So that's great. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's one of those things where most of the time you get there, it's just the having to wait it out. Exactly. And now that you have a plan in place, it's it's probably not going to be too bad. You just have to plan those six months ahead, you know? Yes, exactly. I should have known about this pandemic a year ago. <laughs> yeah. Why Why weren't you prepared for that? That's so frustrating. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, this has been such an awesome conversation. I really, really appreciate your time. This is, I mean, I'm so excited about this program and we're going to have to check in, you know, maybe in like a year or so, hopefully we can say post COVID at that time. And we can yeah. really start to see the, you know, the direct impact. And then I'm so interested to see the data that comes out in the next couple of years as well. Um, if people wanted to reach you with questions or probably mostly questions, uh, is there an email that they could reach you at? Yes, absolutely. So feel free to reach out to me if you need resources or want to know how to do this in your state or really anything. Um, I'm very accessible. So my email address um, is Melanie, M-E-L-A-N-I-E 
Carter, C-A-R-T-E-R, at D-O-E, like the Department of Education, dot K-12, dot G-A, as in Georgia, dot U-S. And yes, I started a new job and then I changed my name. So probably should have done that in the <laughs> the reverse order, but that's my maiden name. So <laughs> Melanie.Carter at DOE dot K-12 dot G-A dot U-S. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.